What would the world look like if decisions were made by the people for the people? Dow or Never is here to break down how DAOs are disrupting traditional power structures and transforming the way we interact. If you're ready, let's get into today's episode. Welcome to Dow or Never. This is the show to help you learn about the rapidly evolving world of DAOs and Web3 from leaders and innovators in the Web3 world. I'm Isaac Padka, co-creator of the Logos DAO. Today we're joined by author, founder, and idealist Ruth Catlow. Ruth is an artist, researcher, and recovering web utopian. Her projects include the Culture Stake app for collective cultural decision-making and LARPs for planetary-scale interspecies justice. She was an early visionary when it comes to seeing the potential for blockchain to democratize art and is the author of Radical Friends, DAOs, and the Arts, and Artists Rethinking the Blockchain. Very excited to have you here with us. Very excited to see you again. It's been maybe five, six months since we last got to LARP together in, uh, in, in France. So we're, yeah, would love to hear what you're working on now. And first, I kind of want to dive into what planetary scale interspecies justice means and why LARPs are a good thing for helping us uh, achieve it. Okay, great. We start in the most fun part. Uh, yeah, lovely to see you again, Isaac. I'd just like to make a correction. I don't think of myself as an idealist. I think of myself as a realist. So if people think I'm an idealist, that says something about them, not me. Ha. But let's talk about interspecies LARPing. Oh, and this might suddenly, I might contradict myself here because this is all about imaginary worlds, worlds of collective make-believe. And I've been working with a whole group of very wonderful artists and techies on a live action role play called the Treaty of Finsbury Park, which is a near future fiction about a time when all the species can suddenly understand each other and communicate with each other. And all the species rise up to demand equal rights and a kind of, yeah, a kind of more than human equal rights. And so for the last three or four years, we've been co-creating a treaty through a series of events. Uh, We ran a series of interspecies assemblies in which people shared their grievances and their talents. And we co-devised events for the interspecies festival of Finsbury Park, which will happen this summer. So the idea was, was that before we can sign a treaty, we have to understand each other's cultures. A lot of this is based on a lot of research with kind of critical animal studies and people who are into biodiversity science and social scientists who are into cultural transformation. So we've been looking at what is important about changing people's attitudes to biodiversity because, as we all know, we're kind of facing both climate emergency, but even more urgently at the moment is just this threat to millions of species of kind of like imminent extinction. So this is all about getting people to feel closer, to understand jeopardy, to understand that all of our futures are kind of entwined, basically. So it's really serious, but it's also deep, kind of deep, imaginative, collective fun. So this summer we will have playing uh, trees, grass, dogs, bees, geese, stag beetle, and oh no, I've forgotten one of them. That's awful. <laughs> another, another species. 
And we'll uh, go on a multi-sensory mystery tour. We'll participate in the interspecies uh, daycare and spa. We'll take part in a multi-species uh, choir and a procession and a protest procession through the park, all in mask, all in costume. And at the end of these events, people just will never feel quite the same way about either their parks or about the species around them or about the life, the kind of webs of life around them. What are some of the things that you've noticed, uh, like kind of before and after somebody participates in one of these like highly imaginative um, but like highly tied to our, our real problems, LARPs. Like I think that, uh, I think I experienced the first one at D web camp last year with the black swan folks. We had to come up with different, uh, councils and ways of governing our resources, but in a very, in a very fun way, it was very, um, being very, very impactful for me and how I think about like, you know, gaining other perspectives and everything. What do you see the effect is usually like after somebody goes through this? Well, for a start, people feel the jeopardy in their bodies. And they also, because they've just played it with 30 people, very often they'll be playing with at least a couple of people who they're going to keep seeing. Uh, they'll hold on to, like if they were playing online, I very often then see people using those masks or those profile pictures for years afterwards. So it becomes a permanent kind of like part of their identity. And the conversations are constantly being picked up. And they're always fun conversations to have, but they make people like once you've been a dog for three hours, you've cut in a very different way. And you're kind of you're viewing the world through smell, basically. And this is what people say is that they kind of for a start at first, most sensible people find the idea of role play absolutely horrifying. But the ones that we do, you create such, you give such a hard problem for them to solve that they forget that that's what they're doing. And the next thing they're doing is like they are three dogs kind of like in conflict with the squirrels who are really annoyed with them for hassling them and chasing down their kits and kind of like the trees are annoyed because the dogs, I'm way too friendly with humans. I pee in all the places that like really damage all the young trees. Like I really know what my role is and kind of biodiversity, health and hazard. And it's the same for all the players. They kind of, you support each other. Like, so what I really love about live action role play is that it's, I'm not just kind of like focused on my own play, but I'm supporting other people to be more tree or to be more grass. And so it's this kind of, it's a real kind of collective imaginative experience. Is that how you, like, how did it work for you? What was most impactful? Let's see. So I'm going to get myself back into my mindset as part of this weird, uh, this strange um, randomized autocracy that, that we created for our government. And I remember like uh, first there was there was quite a lot of effort put into just getting everybody into this mindset of like uh, feeling safe to role play with people that you maybe just met uh, hours earlier, if that or people that you've never met before. So I think that that was very helpful first that we just had there was just some I mean, it was like icebreaker style games, but very much like uh, getting you to feel comfortable with with the people around you, saying absurd sounding things, and also agreeing on kind of a boundaries as far as like what is in the game or when you're feeling uncomfortable and you don't want to be playing the game anymore. And kind of setting setting these ground rules, I think was was very interesting and helped. I think just doing that for the first maybe twenty minutes to half hour put everybody into this different mind space of okay, we're now we can really just like focus on this. Uh, on, on this problem that we're handed. 
And then I remember being handed just these cards of like some rules that were decided for us. So you don't have to come up with everything from scratch. Because I think that if you just ask like people to split into five groups and come up with five different governance structures for how to do stuff, like people might, you might just get kind of an averaging of ideas and maybe you wouldn't get a whole lot of variety and a whole lot of conflict and, and things to resolve. And so we had certain things that were given to us around like, okay, in, in your society, you value this resource, which we've given a fake name so that you don't have any preconceived notions about how to govern this resource. And so like instant being put into this virtual world with people that were all very interested and in also in exploring the imaginative space together led to just a lot of creativity that took place over the course of a couple of days. And so when our uh, randomized autocracy was it was talking to the, the governance of the tree people or the or the uh, or the people that had like a it was some sort of like a technocratic government and when when we were all interacting let's see I'm trying to remember now what were some of the conflicts that we faced because um, we we all had like a some of the governments decided to just try to grow and take over the world versus some that wanted to uh, just kind of achieve their uh, main goal of like kind of compiling piling up resources. I don't know, I'm having I'm having trouble thinking about the exact some of the exact parts of the um, experience. But uh, I just remember as as a result of it, at the end, we all did agree on some like fundamental ways of, of sharing resources and realize that uh, a lot of the uh, conflicts we were having were around our individual cultures. And so even though we were only like in these cultures for half an hour to an hour or maybe a day, whenever anybody felt like their culture of their group was being threatened, it led to a complete breakdown in our ability to to work with each other. And so one of the main things that I think I learned was that like the preservation of a cultural identity as part of these negotiations on resource sharing and resource allocation is so critical because everything else breaks down when everybody when some people feel like well we've had this tradition for six hours of always clapping when we do this and you're not going to take that away from us because that's part of our cultural identity um i thought i thought that was actually quite interesting i think that's such an important insight and it, it kind of reminds me of two two things that are like super impactful about live action role play one is that it can from the pressure to maintain their status like, so we've played a lot of LARPs, both very good LARPs about new technology and LARPs about decentralization and blockchain, as well as the interspecies stuff. But with people who are like top level policymakers, professors of communication, uh, like, yeah, professors of tech, all kinds of thing. And then you go into the games and suddenly their imaginations are freed up and they don't have to be the sensible person representing the policy NGO or representing their university and suddenly they can discover what they really feel and think about things and I think that's super interesting and the other thing that kind of strikes me is just like I guess it's been really central to my work and the work we've done at Furtherfield for 25 years is this understanding that no matter how exciting new techs are and what they can do, like culture, cultures really are the thing. You need to put cultures first if you want to make techs that are going to be technologies. that I feel like we've kind of had this long conversation about LARPs. What's a conversation about LARPs doing in the middle of a podcast about DAOs? Well, 
I think it's because what it does is that it reminds us to center the importance of culture when we're thinking about kind of what DAOs might do for us. Centering culture is a very interesting approach compared to, I remember going to this, uh, this like governance session in California on like water resources. And there was a, a there was a professor there who, who worked on that field. And one of the first things that she did um, when she was doing a LARP about like water resource sharing was come up with a fictional state with fictional resources and not use any names of real things. Because uh, in order to remove the biases around like our feelings around, say, like if we said, OK, we're managing the water of the Central Valley of California, then there's going to be all sorts of culture around like the people that live there, the people that live near there, the fact that I might like to go drive through there to go skiing, like all of that thing and putting it into a fictional space to think about fairness as far as resource allocation. Is that actually helpful or does that remove the thing which is so important, which is like, how do we think about the the, the cultures involved in those spaces? It's such an interesting question. And I will always go, I think you have to make those decisions really carefully, depending on what it is that you're trying to do. All of the LARPs that I've worked on, we've made sure that we have a set of people who are playing it. So we always have some of those people in every game we play. And we often really go quite hard into the specifics of the character, the characters and the places and the, and the very specific troubles that they face. Because otherwise you're generalizing and like you said, I think it's like flattening it out, evening things out. What are some of the kind of more either novel governance structures or like traditional governance structures that actually seem to reemerge in, in, in these things, in these LARPs as they, as they come out? And I mean, mainly because like a part of what I see happening in the DAO space is that we're rediscovering why basic things about democracy are the way that they are based on like people's attention spans and people's uh, like how to include subject matter experts and how when to delegate. And like we, we start to kind of re rebuild these patterns that we see in our own country's governance structures when we're discussing governance of digital assets, tangible assets. Are there any sort of like novel governance structures or underrated governance structures that seem to emerge uh, as people are like taking on different characters? I don't know that I see novel governance structures emerging through LARP. What I see is people suddenly understanding what they might do with things and getting a much better understanding of the problems of different structures. I think this kind of immersive role play gives us a way to collectively understand what is and isn't going to work before we build a ton of tools. So we get to we get to test and yeah, we get to test and feel what will work together and maybe save some time and maybe build things that are more finely tuned to people's needs needs and wants. Is that potentially through like the localization of governance and at what level, maybe through these LARPs, maybe just in other in other parts of your research, like how do you figure out where things should be governed on like a very local level versus a, a kind of like global inter interdependent level? It, it seems like there's a lot of confusion in, in the space around like how which decisions should be made and by and by whom. And actually one one thing that I've been thinking a lot about lately, which is a uh, we can go into this uh, a little bit more if you're interested, but we've, we uh, did an experiment called LampDAO uh, at a conference a couple of weeks ago, um, where the idea was we're all going to figure out how to collectively govern the lamp 
to make sure that it is providing the adequate light for what the majority of the group or what, what certain cohorts of the group want. And how do we actually go about governing something as simple as like, how much light do we want in the room? And one important distinction we found was like the separation between like operations of an ecosystem and the governance of the ecosystem. And in the DAO space, it seems like a lot of people are conflating governance and operations where every single operational decision goes to a referendum versus figuring out how to properly delegate to like local control. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, there are lots of things in the DAO space that kind of make me sigh or make me very, feel very tired. But one of the things that I think is really important about the fact that this space exists as an experimental space and for us to be trying things is that many more people are getting to actually think about what governance is. And who runs uh, the 304 blog talked about, talks about his, he, he did a whole blog uh, podcast about the important difference between coordination and cooperation. And so cooperation is the thing that sits at the governance level. This is where we need to think about who makes the important decisions that affect a lot of people, whereas coordination is at the operational level and you will exhaust everyone. This is not democracy. We don't need those things to be done in a super democratic way. The idea of setting up a DAO to decide how much light a lamp should give is just like, that's horrifying to me except as a really good example of like what not to do. But it's it's kind of interesting. It reminds me of, like I remember reading a education resource about democracy for Scottish school kids. And this was like for 14, 15 year olds. And they'd made an educational resource where they were, the example they'd given was that the these school kids should vote on the colour that one of the committee rooms should be painted. And it's exactly this same mistake, like this is not democracy deciding what colour a committee room should be. Someone who knows what they're doing can make that decision. Yes, it's really important how a budget is split between health and education and kind of what what we do about refugee crisis, what we do, that's democracy. Right. Uh, and while LampDAO existed kind of as an example of here, wouldn't it be awful if we had three day waiting periods to, uh, to see whether the light should be turned on and off. One thing we want, we demonstrated with that was like the thing that knows whether the light should be on or off is the ambient light sensor in the room and the clock. And so what we did was we ended up delegating control to the light sensor, which said, if it's too dark and if it's daytime, Brilliant. please turn the light on. <laughs> Sense prevailed. Fantastic. Yes, yeah. that's prevailed. But we, yeah, we had, uh, I think, just example of uh, like yeah, resource management by by groups and why, yeah, voting does not equal democracy all the time. Yeah, I might disagree with myself now, actually, but definitely in the early in the early experiments we did, I really came to the conclusion that for a lot of art world DAOs that aren't thought experiments or they aren't kind of critical experiments, but like for anything that you actually want to do in the art world because you care about it, actually cord decisions. It's like a ratification process. It's like you have these very kind of complex, culturally sensitive, by which I mean complex conversations, or you have all this kind of deliberative process, and then you decide, and then often you can just use the DAO to record people's decisions, and then you have a permanent record of the decision. And this feels like actually a really good use of 
these kinds of technologies to kind of like provide a record of what was decided so that you can then kind of continue to make better decisions as time goes on, but not to record every little micro decision along the way. Mm-hmm. One of the use cases in, in kind of DAOs and collective governance that I'm finding most exciting now is something that I learned about from some friends when I was at, at ETH Denver from uh, Michael Zargam at Block Science and Amber Case. I'm not sure if you know Case or, or Zargam from uh, DAO stuff, but Case released this blog post on something called Superset. And Superset is this protocol for basically how users of a tech platform can collectively negotiate for updating the terms of service, basically, for, for the platform and, and maybe their benefits. Uh, in this case, it's like a, da- a platform which maybe you're using for stock trading or anything which is collecting your data, and you and other users can come together and have some sort of influence on why and when the company should update that terms of service, and also like what it, what it means to be a user of this platform versus kind of like the one way, here's our product, here's our terms of service, use it or not. Instead, it's like, here's our product, here's our terms of service, and all you, all of you users are entered into this like union, not union style thing of people that can come together and, uh, and organize against us, if you disagree. This is where it gets really interesting, I think. And it kind of resonates with some of the work that we're doing on Culture Stake and some of the work that, some of the experimental work that's going on at the Radical Exchange, because it feels like it sits at the axis of, like voting and deliberation so that you have kind of like a set of things where you're so we use quadratic voting in our culture stake app so this is a voting protocol that allows people to express not only their preferences but the intensity of their preferences and we often use it in a kind of two-tiered in a kind of two-tiered process so people vote on the thing that they would prefer and then they say what it is about that thing that is important to them and then this data becomes like shared communal data so people can see their own preferences in relation to their kind of community's preferences so it becomes a kind of much more nuanced way for people to see how the people that they have a shared space with or a shared where they have something in common that they that they care about these processes can help them understand but I feel like there's a one of the things that kind of makes me squirm a bit in the blockchain space is what I think is this kind of overstating of the kind of like democratic process. Oh, yes, we're handing it over to you. But actually, still in culture stake, as the organisation that's hosting this event, we are deciding what questions will be asked. And it's the same with the example you give. That would, Like, you never ask a question to which the answer someone might give you is something that you couldn't live with. Yeah, so unless it's real kind of, unless you have some way to really open the field and to accept and respond honestly to anything that people suggest, I think there's always this kind of, how do you manage that process? I think it's really interesting. Yeah, I think the way that they are approaching that is basically like, in this case, a, a company is actually setting up a specific flavor of trust, which has like actual legal influence over over the company itself. Um, but the trust itself is responsible to a specific purpose. And so it's this thing that I, I started learning a little bit more about in the last year, where it's like a, a purpose-driven trust versus a trust that's responsible to like individuals and people whose interests can change over time. But if you can very clearly outline like a constitution or a purpose that says the stewards of this trust have to legally enforce that it's it's abiding by this 
purpose, not um, abiding by what this like person says who whose interests might change over time. Um, I think that, and then giving that uh, trust, actual legal uh, control over uh, actual legal influence over what what the company does uh, versus like uh, uh, just like putting out questions and like Twitter polls. I think that perhaps that uh, is useful. But what's what's also interesting about that is like it is it's like wrapping up all this like DAO and governance stuff into a legal wrapper so that it can have like actual actual legal weight. But uh, I'm curious if like purpose trusts play at all into perpetual purpose trusts and stuff like that play at all into like kind of this interspecies uh, uh, resource sharing or or any part of this uh, this this type of research that you're working on. Well, so the way we're working with culture stake inside our interspecies live action role play. So after people have attended a three hour festival and they've been another species then we're using the quadratic voting app to have them decide on a set of things that are important to the bountiful biodiversity of these decisions. The thing that I kills of this kind of field at the moment, and I'm really interested, I'm kind of interested to know like how you deal with the fact that people have very different interpretations, like so you can set a purpose, but people might have very different interpretations of what that purpose is, unless it's a very kind of, uh, unless it's quite a narrow thing. Like people can always come at it, come at things from a different kind of trajectory and not necessarily being deliberately disruptive, but that people genuinely have such different perspectives on what is important. So there's always this kind of work to do first about to understand, yeah, like what shared understanding you have of what's important. Well, I kind of want to understand like what would, let's say that there's an outcome of the LARP in the park for like that the, all, all the animals agree on what, what, what would be like a very specific thing. Let's say that they were governing the biodiversity of the park. Like we want to make sure that you're not allowed to cut down trees unless they have, unless they are posing like imminent danger to the health and safety of, of, of other creatures like is that is that like an example of an outcome that they might want to say or is that like too literal or or i mean the, okay so this is a really good example so that's let's give two very different examples that would be one example another example might be that uh they wanted to change the mowing regime so that a proportion of the part was left to grow longer for longer periods of time because then in wild flower meadows you get this real blooming of biodiversity in soil health in uh, both plants and insects so that would be an another one uh, but at a completely different register we have uh, there's kind of antagonism between the humans in the park and the local council because the local council animal life it tramples the soil across half of the park so you've got you've got these very different registers of things happening and there are some things that park users could choose to do but then there's other registers that people like you have to find different ways to get at people so do, do you see what i mean so like i do, yeah i think there's always these questions about things that are happening at different registers and where agency lies and where you can apply levers. I think this is one of the things that I kind of, I always, that's it's one of the reasons why I always enjoy talking to you about this kind of stuff is because you're so deep in it. Like you really get how complex it is 
how many layers there are of kind of layers of agency and uh, levers to pull before we can really start talking about these things as democratic, as tools for democracy. Yeah, because you're always, they're always nested in other, other systems and the way they're nested matters and you only need to change one thing about the way they're nested and it completely changes kind of the impact of decisions that happen in one place. Yeah, that's like, uh, it's actually been kind of, one of my main, one of my main focuses, I think, since since we last spoke, is just trying to unravel, um, or if not unravel, just at least map the complexity of of the space and, and the dependencies. Uh, people in the blockchain space love the word composability. They're like, oh, well, I, I plug my quadratic voting in here, and then I have my treasury here, and then I have my company structure in this country, and like it's rather than it being like a bunch of building blocks that uh that just like like legos that fit together nicely like you can you can very easily create these like incredibly fragile structures where absolutely everything crumbles uh and you think well i mean it's but it was like composable i I picked a delaware llc i picked a i picked a gnosis safe i picked this voting module but then you picked like some messaging bridge between two chains and that got hacked. And now, no, the, everything that you've ever done is completely, it has completely unraveled. The amount of complexity that people are piling into these structures is perhaps not more complex uh, than traditional legal organizations, but it's much more opaque. And it, see, it feels to be much more fragile uh, unless we can really understand like what, what, how all these layers are working together. Is it possible for them to achieve their intended purpose when like, one uh, toothpick holding up the entire thing just snaps and and everything that we've been working for just unravels. Yeah, so there's that. And then another thing that came up in one of the group sessions that you and I were both in at the Glitch uh, residency last year was this, was was kind of like another, there's probably a hundred different lenses we could take on the problems of DAOs. And but one that really springs to mind listening to you speak was this workshop that I led to try and help us think about the impact of technologies or how useful these technologies might be for people who weren't in the room with us, for people who weren't on this residency, for people who were organizing for kind of progressive social reasons or like teachers or health workers or like what how is any of this stuff useful to them and I found like there was there were so many things came out of that session but one of the things that struck me most profoundly was someone uh, from an indigenous background saying when we are forced to use new technologies to do things that we have always been able to facilitate ourselves between for our own communities. When we're forced to use new technologies to do those things in order to access resources that are important to us, that is structural violence. Mm-hmm. And that really struck me. So we've got kind of just a whole set of things here. We've got a really complex text that might be really fragile. We've got a set of tools that maybe people like can't get their hands on because they're too complex. I think this is one area that has really improved over the last couple of years. I think I think the tools are becoming more accessible. But then we've got people coming up with really bright ideas for how to make the world a better place that is essentially going to, that may well end up really being imposed on vast swathes of humanity and other species that they will be forced to use 
in a way that isn't in their interest. Yeah, there's this kind of core question that I've been, this core provocation that I've been talking to people about lately, which is like, when we're thinking about designing these new protocols, these new systems, can we first come up with this like set of set of invariants, like the, the set of stuff that we can't ever violate in, in doing this, where perhaps one of them um, that I like to use is uh, the concept of like a decentralized identity system, where on the surface, like it looks great in a paper, it looks great in a blog post. But like, if you actually sat down first and thought, like, what are the core rights that people should have in a, in a system like this? And perhaps one of those rights should be the right to leave this system or the right to not engage with it. And can you create some sort of like reputation system that people could choose to opt out from and have it still work? And if the answer is no, perhaps that means we shouldn't build that system. I mean, like if we if we were to do this and to add one more rule in, so could they opt out of it and the system still work? Could they opt out of it and not experience harm themselves for opting out of it? Like if we start to take these rules as our kind of like start of a 10, I think that we might be able to reduce harm in a really significant way. And I think it's really interesting. I think we might change the systems that you also start to think much more carefully about or maybe more honestly about who's actually invested in this work Mm -hmm. like when you start to think about things in that way like rather than imagining that we're making something for everyone and the world's going to be a better place because of that no maybe not yeah and if you push back and say well i mean perhaps the world would be a worse case because now this is a involuntary system that everybody has has to use and and it can break in these ways and or cause harm to them in these ways and if you push back and then the people who are behind the project say uh well we need to push forward because like that yeah it it, it reveals the it does really reveal the motivations of the people that are working on the on, on the thing when you start to think about what are the things that we can never that we can never violate in, in building this technology yeah i love it let's do it nice <laughs> <laughs> let's make it so yeah. <laughs> So what are the, uh, what are some of the, the interspecies LARP? Are you doing more, like, uh, have you done any more of those, like, uh, blockchain from an outsider's perspective? Like, what are some of the, like, LARPs bouncing around in your head that you want to, that you would love to see people engage with? One that I have been thinking about is actually really close to the topics that we've just been discussing. I would really like to do a live action role play. In, In my head, it's called... Uh, the webbed worlds we wanted it's i think it might still be multi-species but that might be too far out but it's set seven generations in into the future it's set probably very soon after uh solar flare has taken out all electronics and communication networks uh probably just in northern europe or just in northern america i haven't decided yet and we gather together and discuss all the ways everything is absolutely fine because when we were designing our decentralized tech uh, we built in resilience that wasn't dependent on digital networks so that it's this kind of thing of like really instantiating the kind of values and the embodied and physical network so that we've got basically we'd thought about how to do communication just using kind of relays or I don't know, but so, but something where we'd like really think through all of this stuff in a very embodied and very emplaced way. 
Uh, so this is one that I'm cooking up at the moment. And uh, I know that you're not doing too much travel at the moment, but I feel like that would be a very good fit for the web camp uh, in, in California. Mm. <laughs> where I remember last year, some people brought this, these people working on something called a butter box, which is like a series of a, a bunch of raspberry pies that can connect over like a mesh network. So you don't need to be connected to the outside world. You just need your little uh, like five or six pies that you set up throughout the forest. And now uh, people can use their phones to connect to the local the local internet, which gets them the map to the camp and when is dinner um, and where's the water and what are our rules without having to have any connection to the outside uh, outside world. It was also just cool getting a bunch of like, you know, tech people camping and sleeping in hammocks and uh, doing talks and also rock climbing and stargazing together. That sounds wonderful. I've always been a bit obsessed with kind of mesh network, off internet mesh network tech. Yeah, that does sound good. Nice. Anything else that you want to uh, share in our in our kind of like last in our wrapping up of any books you're working on or any uh, things people should be looking for? Um, I'm actually I am working on a book with Mark Garrett, who is my partner and co-founder of Furtherfield. So we're currently working on a book that is looking back at 25 years of uh, Furtherfield's work in the web. You'll note in my bio, I describe myself as a recovering web utopian. Uh, And this is because of my kind of our experience of building communities online since the mid nineties. And the kind of like, so the book is really about our experience of kind of forging these networks of amazing collaborators and friends who are artists, techies and activists and building early platforms using free and open source kind of peer-to-peer peer-to-peer technologies so that we could collaborate and work together and do all these experiments with the digital tech as a kind of artistic medium and so the book is really about these swings from like the utopian dreams of the early day of days of the web where we thought if we could see ourselves together and we we would be able to act in collective interest and then the kind of centralization of the web that happened in the in the kind of mid noughties and if all the everything that came with that around kind of surveillance and the privatization of public utilities and all of these kinds of things so this is really our book is about how artists have been kind of exploring the social and political impact of network tech for the last yeah, 25, 30 years uh, in a way that has really excited us. And I think very often artists have kind of seen trouble coming ahead in ways uh, that sometimes are a little bit like kind of Cassandra, you know, like they go, watch out, it's coming, but no one's kind of listening. No one, But nevertheless, it gives us a way to understand and feel quite complex and difficult stuff. But it's very exciting to be kind of revisiting some of the really early experiments and seeing their resonance with the things that have been kind of happening in the blockchain space since and learning the lessons again and again and again about kind of how not to get, not to be too idealistic and what troubles to look out for. Sounds awesome. Um, and thank you so much for, uh, for for joining today and hope to uh, have you back to discuss some of that stuff in the future and also perhaps uh, hear some of the results from the LARPs. Lovely. That would be fantastic. Thanks, Isaac. Hope you enjoyed today's episode of Dow or Never. 
Make sure to subscribe at logos.xyz slash podcast and follow us on Twitter at 0xlogos so you never miss out on any of the latest happenings in the DAO world. It's DAO or never. Never.